Good morning and welcome. We're glad that you're here today. It's a beautiful day. We're glad that you're with us and we hope and pray that our worship together will be beneficial to you and glorifying to God. Grateful for all those who are visiting. As always, we invite you to come back. So grateful for your presence today. And if you're looking for a church home, we want to, by all means, invite you to consider the work here. We'd love to have you come and be a part of our work together. We need your help, and we would love to have you working here with us on a daily basis. We're going to be looking at Revelation chapter 1 today, Revelation chapter 1. We'll be looking at several verses in chapter 1 of this great book. And today, the theme of our lesson, good news for a change. There's a lot of negative information and news on a daily basis. As a matter of fact, it's difficult to turn on the television without reading about something negative, something bad happening. And I think about all of the different places around our world that on a daily basis amidst negative information. It's on television, it's in the newspaper, it's on the internet, it's everywhere. And so, so many times, day after day, all we hear is the bad, the negative. And yet, out of all of that bad information, all of the bad news, there's some good news. And there is some news that really ought to make us step back and be very grateful. And the good news is the gospel of Christ, isn't it? As a matter of fact, when you think about that word gospel, what comes to mind? The good news. In Revelation chapter 1, John in the Revelation provides us with some good news and really good news for a change. You have to understand that John was writing to Christians who were suffering. John himself was suffering tribulation. He had been banished to the Isle of Patmos. And John is writing to Christians and he's encouraging them to hold on to God, to be faithful come what may. And though he's writing to people who are faced with bad news, difficult times, He's saying, let me tell you what, there's some good news. And I, for one, think it's time for some good news. I think we need some good news. So I want to share with you some good news that I believe is outlined in Revelation chapter 1. First, when it comes to good news, what John says is that Jesus is reigning. Let's think for a minute or two about the reign of of Jesus. Pick up with me if you would in verse 4. John to the seven churches which are in Asia. Grace to you and peace from him who is, who was, and who is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler over the kings of the earth. 
What about the idea of Jesus reigning? First and foremost, I want to suggest to you that Jesus is reigning over the physical kingdoms. John said that Jesus is the ruler over the kings of the earth. When John wrote this book, Nero Caesar was on his throne. And if you go back and you look at history, historians tell us that Nero Caesar was a very evil man. And he wanted people to address him as Lord and God. And God's people were suffering tribulation and trial and difficulty. Some were being martyred for the cause of Christ. And so John is writing to Christians and he's saying to them, you need to understand that there is one who is reigning who is higher than Nero on his throne, who has more power than Domitian. And you look around in our world today and sometimes you think about this flood of information that comes in every single day. And many of us who live in America, we are concerned about the future of our nation. We're concerned about the status the country we love. And many times we say, you know what, this isn't the country that I grew up in. This isn't the country that I remember from days gone by. It's very easy to become pessimistic and negative because in a world that filters out negative information day in, day out, sometimes we lose sight of the fact that God is still on his throne. Daniel said in Daniel chapter 4, verse 32, the Most High rules in the kingdoms of men. God is still on his throne, isn't he? The psalmist said in Psalm 99 verse 1, the Lord reigns. And all he's saying is that God is still in control. And that's what we need to remember. John was writing to Christians. And sometimes when you're faced with difficulties and trials in life, you lose sight of the fact that there is still a God in heaven who is in control of all things. He is the sovereign ruler of the universe, isn't he? So John is saying to us, that Jesus is reigning and that he reigns over physical kingdoms. But then also he reminds us that the Lord reigns over his spiritual kingdom. Drop down and look, if you would, at verse 5. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. And he said he's made us a kingdom and priest to his God and Father. First, I think about the preeminence of Jesus over his kingdom. Paul said in Colossians chapter 1, in verse 18, that Jesus is the head of the body of the church, which is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. Paul would write in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 15, that Jesus is the King of kings and Lord of lords. Jesus has a kingdom, and he is preeminent over that kingdom, isn't he? Not only is Jesus preeminent over his kingdom, but John talks about the people who are a part of that kingdom. Those of us who have obeyed the gospel, we're a part of this spiritual institution known as the church. He's writing to Christians. And he's telling them, look, you live under the reign of a king who is king over a physical kingdom, the Roman Empire. But as a child of God, you are a part of a spiritual kingdom. 
over which Jesus serves as your head, as your king. When Paul wrote to the church at Colossae, he talked about how they had been delivered out of the power of darkness and translated into the kingdom of God's dear son. It's a spiritual kingdom, isn't it? And this spiritual kingdom has a king. And we live today and give homage to the king of kings and to the Lord of lords. So to be a part of that kingdom in John in Revelation chapter 1 in verse 9 identifies himself as a brother and companion in tribulation and in the kingdom. John was a member of the kingdom. And John could bask in the blessings of being a part of that spiritual kingdom. Now there's a second thing I want you to see in our study. We talk about good news for a change. First, the good news. Jesus reigns. But secondly, the good news, Jesus redeems. Did you know that Jesus is our Redeemer? Listen again to what John said. To him who loved us. Let's just pause there for a minute. The redemptive work of Jesus Christ. First and foremost, the Bible tells us the Lord loves us, doesn't he? Do you remember when you were those of us who are older, you remember when you were younger and you sang the song, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. The Bible tells us that God loves us. As a matter of fact, in 1 John 4, 8, in a very concise way, John simply said, God is love. Did you know that his love is indisputable? I mean, when you read the scriptures, it's abundantly clear that the Lord loves his people, that his love for us is indisputable. There's no getting around it. Over and over again, the Bible talks about the tremendous love of the Lord. Jesus in John 3, 16 said, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And then Jesus in John 15, verse 13, said, Greater love has no man than this, than a man lay down his life for his friends. Or what about when Paul wrote to the church at Ephesus? And he said, But God, who is rich in mercy, for the great love wherewith he loved us. God loves us. And as we sing, Jesus loves us. And that's something that we know. Not only is his love indisputable, but it is incomparable. There's no way that we can compare the love of God, the love of the Lord, to any other kind of love. Probably the closest that we can come is the love that exists between a husband and a wife or parents and their children. Paul told the church at Ephesus, he told those husbands to love their wives even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. You think about the incomparable love of God. In Matthew chapter 7, Jesus encourages his disciples to pray, to ask, to seek, to knock. And he talks about how as an earthly father, if you know how to give good gifts unto your children... 
He said, how much more will your heavenly Father give good gifts to those who love him? God's love, the love of Jesus, incomparable. When Paul wrote to the churches of Galatia, he talked about how he had been crucified with Christ. And he said, it's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And speaking of Christ, he said, who loved me and gave himself for me. Personal love, profound love. And so, John here is simply reminding us that the Lord loves us. Not only does the Lord love us, but John said, the Lord liberates us. Listen again to what he said, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. Two things here. Number one, we are liberated from sin's claims. What does the Bible say about sin? What does the Bible say about sin and its relationship to the human family? Well, Paul said in Romans chapter 3, there is none righteous, no, not one. In verse 23, he said, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. In verse John 3, verse 4, John said, that sin is the transgression of the law. The word sin means a missing of the mark. And so as members of the human family, what, what John is saying is, when we transgress the law of God, the will of God, we commit sin. And the conclusion of Paul is, and if you go back and read the book of Romans in chapter 1, he would say that the Gentile world, they're under sin. In, in chapter 2, he would say the Jewish world, they too are under sin. In chapter 3, the conclusion is, both Jew and Gentile alike, they're all under sin. There's none righteous, no, not one. And yet Jesus came to liberate us from sin's claim. You see, in effect, the devil has laid claim to us, hasn't he? And why is that? Because of sin. So we enjoy liberation from sin's claim, but also liberation from sin's chains. Think about that. We are liberated from sin's chains. In John chapter 8, Jesus talked about how those who commit sin are the bondservants of sin. In other words, they become enslaved to that way of life. In verse 36, Jesus said, but if the Son makes you free, he said you're free indeed. Now in 2 Timothy chapter 2, Paul talks about a person who gets caught up in a way of life that is steeped in sin. And he said the goal is for someone to teach that person that they might escape the snares of the devil. And in verse 26 he said, who are taken captive by him to do his will. In other words, they've been imprisoned or chained by sin. This past week I had the opportunity to attend a funeral for a friend of mine. He was one of the elders at the Getwell Church, W.T. Hardwick. He was buried on his 94th birthday. He fought in World War II. In 1944, he was taken prisoner and became a prisoner of war. If I recall correctly, he told me that when he was captured, he weighed 200 pounds. 
When he was later released in 1945, he had lost, he had lost 60 pounds. He was down to 140 pounds. He was a prisoner of war. He'd been captured. And yet, later liberated. Now we understand sometimes what it means to be chained in a prison cell or imprisoned or captured by the enemy. And what John is saying is when you're in sin, and that's what Paul is saying as well, when you're living in sin, you're in captivity. You've been captured. You're imprisoned. You're chained by what? By sin? By Satan? And yet, John tells us that Jesus has loved us and liberated us from sin by his own blood. How grateful we ought to be for the blood of Jesus. To think that Jesus redeemed us by his blood. Paul in Colossians chapter 1 would talk about how Jesus made peace through the blood of his cross. Or what about the words of Paul in Ephesians 1.7? In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. To know that we have been redeemed by the precious blood of Christ, as Peter would say, as of a lamb without spot and without blemish. So Jesus has redeemed us by his blood. He's reconciled us in his body, Ephesians 2.16. And thereby we become a part of his kingdom, the church. And we're blessed in that sphere. Now there's a third thing I want to share with you in our study. Again, we're talking about the good news. Good news for a change. The good news is that Jesus reigns. The good news is Jesus redeems. And the good news is Jesus was resurrected. What about the resurrected Jesus? Well, drop down if you would to verse 18. In verse 18, John writes, I am he, speaking of Jesus, I am he who lives and was dead. And behold, I'm alive forevermore. Amen. And he said, I have the keys of death and Hades. First and foremost, John is talking here about the conquering Jesus. Jesus Christ was resurrected from the dead, right? And the Bible tells us he destroyed the foe who had the power of death. And in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14, he is identified as the devil. Back in Genesis chapter 3, following the fall of man in the Garden of Eden, God set forth a promise, the promised seed. And he said, speaking of that promised seed, that he would bruise his head, a reference to the blow that Jesus would strike the devil with following his death and resurrection. He said, he'll bruise your heel. Jesus, of course, being put to death on Calvary. But when Jesus died and rose again, he destroyed him who had the power of death, that being the devil. He nullified, in a sense, the sting of death, didn't he? And we talk about the resurrected Christ. Paul said that Jesus was declared to be the Son of God with power by the spirit of holiness according to the resurrection from the dead. So I think about the conquering Jesus, the one who destroyed the foe who had the power of death, and then I would suggest he is the one who delivers us from 
the penalty of death. He delivers all who face the penalty of death. Let me tell you what. Whether we like it or not, we're not going to get out of this world alive, are we? Unless Jesus comes. We're all going to face, as Paul said, the sting of death. And yet, Jesus has the ability to give us life. In John chapter 11, Jesus said to Martha, I'm the resurrection and the life. He that believeth on me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. The Bible says we live in hope of life eternal, which God, who cannot lie, promised before the world began. So John depicts this conquering Jesus and then also the coming Jesus. Back up again and look at verse 7 very quickly. And notice John talks about the revelation of Jesus. When Jesus comes, he's going to be revealed from heaven. He's coming with his mighty angels. And John said in Revelation chapter 1, verse 7, Behold, he's coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, and they also who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Even so, amen. John said, audibly speaking, or rather, visibly speaking, we'll all see him. And Paul said, audibly, we'll all hear him. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God. Jesus is coming, isn't he? The resurrected Lord is coming. And listen, when Jesus comes, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven, the Bible tells us the resurrection will occur. That is, those who are in the graves will come forth. Listen again to what he says in verse 18. I am he who lives and was dead. Behold, I'm alive forevermore. Amen. And he said, I have the keys of Hades and of death. What, what John is saying on behalf of Jesus is this. When he comes, he's going to take the keys to the cemeteries. He's going to unlock those doors and the dead will come forth. As the Lord himself said during his personal, personal ministry, the hour is coming when all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life, those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. Now, look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Paul writes about the resurrected Christ. And he talks about those who witnessed the resurrected Christ. And the thrust of that chapter is, if Jesus has not been resurrected from the dead. He said, our faith is vain, our preaching is vain. He said, we're still in sin. But the facts are, Jesus was raised from the dead the third day. And just as Jesus was raised from the dead, the assurance to all of us today is we too will be raised from the dead. So Paul could say, look, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Neither does corruption inherit incorruption. He said, behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. We shall be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. And we shall be changed. And the dead will be raised. So to know that death does not mean the end. Now you want some good news? The good news is Jesus was raised from the dead. The good news is when we go to the cemetery and bury a loved one who died in Christ, that is not the end. 
John's writing to Christians, some of whom had lost brothers and sisters in Christ. He's writing to people that were being martyred for their faith. And so against that backdrop, he could say, Blessed are the dead which die in the Lord. Yes, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, and their works follow them. In other words, they've gone home to be with the Lord, haven't they? And when he comes, guess what? They'll come with him. Good news. The good news is death does not mean the end. It's the beginning, the beginning of a whole new way of life on the other side. I want to close today by reminding all of us it's easy to become a pessimist and to look at the world and the affairs of the world through negative lens. If you're not careful, the things that are going on in the world can discourage you the things in this world can dampen your enthusiasm and sometimes sadly in light of everything going on sometimes people give up. And what John is saying is you can't afford to give up. Why? Because there's good news. The good news? Jesus reigns. The good news? Jesus redeems. The good news? Jesus was resurrected. So we're blessed. So if you're here today and you're not a Christian, could I encourage you to come to Christ? Could I encourage you to simply do what they did in the first century? They believed Jesus was the Son of God because Jesus said, except you believe that I'm He, you'll die in your sins. John 8, 24. If you believe that and you would be willing to respond by turning from a life of sin called repentance, confess the name of Jesus and then be buried with Him in baptism, you can enjoy the washing away of your sins that Paul talks about in Acts twenty-two sixteen, The washing away of sins that John talks about in Revelation chapter 1, verse 5. If you're here today, for whatever reason, your life's not what it ought to be and you need the prayers of the church, maybe you're struggling. And maybe you're hurting physically and emotionally. As members of the body of Christ, we can pray with you and for you. We'll be happy to do that today as we stand and sing.